Man, whatever happened to Dazzler? Which one? There's more than one? Well, sure, there's the mutant disco queen Allison Blair, and then there's Bertram Worthington. Worthington? Does he have anything to do with Angel? Yeah, in fact, he's Angel's uncle. He's the younger brother of Warren Worthington Jr. Wait, Warren's uncle is a superhero? Supervillain. You'd think that would come up. I've never heard of him. What did he do? Well, in the Silver Age, he roped his brother into abetting a diamond smuggling operation, then murdered him. Ah, well, damn. Yeah, you know, and it seemed like he was gone for good after that. But apparently he'd just been regrouping and he popped back up in X-Men The Hidden Years just in time to... Get in a dance-off with the good Dazzler? Go full Hamlet and marry then murder Angel's mother. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 133 of J and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to space, because we are covering the second half of X-Factor's surprisingly awesome and surprisingly forgotten story, The Judgment War. But first, we have some other stuff. We do. We have some news. In fact, we specifically have merch news, which we haven't had new in a while. On a couple fronts, the first is that we are gradually moving our merch from Redbubble to TeePublic, and we are starting that with a brand new t-shirt that I have been wanting to make for ages and am super, super, super excited about. It features art by Scott Koblish and design by our go-to guy, Dylan Todd, and it is finally a Kitty Pride Rachel Summers It's Not Just a Phase t-shirt. I am so pleased by this. It's my favorite bit of subtext that's not even really subtext in X-Men probably of all time. Also, a really, really appropriate pun, like on multiple levels, because phase and then phase, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? It's not funny if you explain it, man. No, it's still funny. It's just that good. <laughs> so we're going to be gradually moving stuff from Redbubble to Public, and then eventually, I think probably closing down the Redbubble shop at the end of the year. So if there's stuff that you want there, a lot of the things are going to move. Not everything will We will mark stuff that's available limitedly, and you might want to get in sooner rather than later to pick that up. So the other thing is on the way over here, we were listening to the podcast that Teen Titans Wasteland has turned into, which is called Tighten Up the Defense. They cover new Teen Titans and the Defenders series. Yeah, the Marvel Defenders, which I'm super excited about because 70s Defenders is amazing and also Hub and Corey are brilliant. And, you know, we keep on listening to them on the way to Kyle's to record. And I have really mixed feelings about that because on one hand, they're great and entertaining and inspiring. And on the other hand... They're just ungodly damn intimidating to listen to before we go on because they are way funnier than we are. I think they kind of are, yeah. But uh, yeah, check it out. If you like us, I suspect you would like them. Yeah, and also if you are someone who hasn't gone and listened because you're a Marvel person or because you want X characters, hey, they're doing the Defenders now, so you can do that. But you should also just go back and listen to all of Teen Titans Wasteland because it's seriously my favorite podcast, including ours. So, giant plug aside, we have some not Teen Titans or Defenders to talk about. We have some X-Factor to talk about. A giant plug seems like something that a Batman villain would have, or like maybe Silver Age Electro or something. No, it seems like something that would be at the bottom of the ocean in some kind of a a Warner Brothers cartoon. Dude, there is an episode of, I think, The Electric Company where Morgan Freeman sings a song about the plug at the, either the plug or the hole at the bottom of the sea. Oh man, maybe that was like buried in my subconscious from when I saw that when I was a kid or something. Didn't the Electric Company also have Spider-Man on it at one point? It did. See, I haven't actually seen very much Electric Company, but I've had that particular episode described to me enough that I have like fake memories of it. Oh man, implanted memories from Morgan Freeman and Spider-Man. But like really nice ones. Oh, well, it's Morgan Freeman. He's a a a nice guy. I mean, I assume he's a nice guy. He sounds like a nice guy. So, Judgment War. Now, this is another, just like last episode, part two of two. 
Right. Just like we took two episodes to cover the New Mutants Asgardian adventure, we're taking two episodes to cover X-Factor's brief segue into a metaphor within a metaphor. So if you haven't in listened, space. if you haven't listened to our first Judgment War episode, you should do that because we'll try to recap, but this probably won't make much sense without it. We'll drop a link to it in this episode's visual companion, which you can find online at explainthexmen.com. But let's give some brief context with a previously on X Factor. All right, the current members of X Factor are the five original X Men: Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Archangel, and Iceman, but they're not exactly alone. Two of them have hop-ons. That's right, because at the end of Inferno, Marvel Girl Jean Grey gained the personalities and memories of Matt. And prior and the Phoenix Force. Those are sort of uh, rattling around inside of her head, and periodically they take over and do evil slash cosmic things. Meanwhile, Archangel is still wrestling with the death persona left with him by Apocalypse, who also kidnapped him, souped him up, and gave him fancy, fancy belated wings, which he can now use to kill, dismember, or just drug people. That's not the only change to X-Factor recently, because also since Inferno, they're hanging out with baby Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, the son of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor. He is a very powerful baby, as babies go. Most babies are not telepathic and telekinetic. This Thank one, God. This one apparently is. I like how you describe them as hanging out with him, like they're all just drinking beers and talking about the game or something. Oh, yeah, they chuck him a beer, and like he just catches it with a telekinesis. It's great. Yeah, God, I have to say, a telekinetic baby would be nightmarish. This one is surprisingly well-behaved. Well, that's because this one doesn't have conventional telekinesis. He can just create a force bubble to protect himself. Well, he can do a little more, like he sort of telekinetically zaps Gene later in this arc, but we'll get to that. Right. All he can do is reflexive self-defense. Mm-hmm. Like, he cannot, for instance, throw a temper tantrum in Wrecker Room yet. Now, the other entity, I suppose, that X-Factor's hanging out with is Ship. Ship is the sentient spaceship that used to be the floating base of Apocalypse back in the day before X-Factor took it over and freed its personality. And Ship's got some other stuff going on, as we found out at the beginning of Judgment War, when out of nowhere, it just took the hell off and flew into space and across the galaxy. It turns out the Celestials, a race of Jack Kirby-created space gods, wanted Ship for reasons? We'll get to that. It didn't, however, want any of X-Factor, or the baby they're hanging out with, drinking beer with. So the Celestials teleported them down to the warring planet below, which has so much going on. At which point, this arc basically becomes a long Star Trek episode in really good ways. X-Factor is teleported down into the middle of a massive melee and immediately split up. Archangel ends up a captive of the Chosen, who are the physically perfect kind of ruling class of the planet. We meet a couple of them pretty quickly. There's Most Perfect Sira, who is a very attractive pink-haired lady who takes a liking to him. And then there's High Lord Rask, who's a big beardy dude who is less perfect and very resentful. Rask is getting rich by using Archangel to fight for him in a gladiatorial arena. Sira, on the other hand, has found and secretly kidnapped baby Nathan Christopher and is trying her best to raise him. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! It's not really X-Men without baby theft. That's right, or breaking down walls. Or both. Now, Iceman lost his memory in the initial melee due to a stray psychic blast. There are lots of those on this planet. And he's thought to be a dueler. That's D-U-A-L-E-R, not D-U-E-L-E-R. Actually, they're both. Well, that's true. Because this sort of sub-race of the Chosen can transform themselves into a non-humanoid form, Iceman has his ice form, and a woman he meets named Lev has her fire form, and often do arena stuff. Well, they are preferred champions in the arena, along with prisoners of war like Archangel. The duelers are a subclass again. The chosen are obsessed with physical perfection, which also involves physical conformity. The fact that the duelers can change form means that they are lesser in the eyes of the chosen. 
Now, opposed to the Chosen are the Rejects. They're much more monstery and therefore, in my opinion, much cooler, but also yeah. sort of less technology-based and by some definitions, less civilized. Well, they've specifically rejected technology and especially rejected the cloning and genetic engineering embraced by the Chosen, who have themselves entirely abandoned sexual reproduction. Now, Beast was assumed to be a reject by the rejects who were present, so he's hanging out with them. He has bonded with Zarka, their cycloptic leader. But once she realized that he was probably lying about where he came from, she has imprisoned him. Speaking of cycloptic leaders, Cyclops has ended up with a third faction. Those are the Beginnigans. They are a mystic tribe of both Chosen and Rejects who worry that the space gods, the term for the Celestials, are coming to judge their planet and will destroy it, and that maybe all of the factions should get their shit together before that happens. Now, the Beginnigans are led by a sort of mystic seer guy named Ryast, and also include his earthquake-controlling son, Daikon, who's been hanging out with Cyclops. And may or may not be a radish. And may or may not be a radish. Marvel Girl, meanwhile, is unconscious. Yeah, as much as Sira, one of the Chosen, who turns out to be a really awesome character, is very focal in this story, Jean Grey gets largely sidelined for more than the first half of it. The story has basically two female protagonists, but oddly, neither of them is the one who comes in with the team. We've got Sira and Lev. Jean Grey is used oddly in this story, and she is currently a prisoner of the Rejects. She is presumed to be among the Chosen because her form is superficially entirely human-looking, and she is scheduled to be part of a prisoner exchange at the Common Ground, which is where such things happen. Now, simultaneous to this prisoner exchange, we also have Iceman and Archangel being set to fight in the arena. Everybody's, you know, wagering on them. They're going to be fighting to the death, and we have Cyclops going with some of the less passive begin-agains to go try to rescue Gene and his son, Nathan Christopher. Now, we mentioned that Iceman's amnesiac, right? We did, yes. As far as he knows, he's just a dueler, and he's going to fight this guy with bladed wings in the arena to make life awesome for the other duelers. Right. So obviously, that's going to be kind of a problem. Now, there is one issue we're not going to be talking about in this arc that technically takes place in the middle of it. That's a fill-in issue, number 47. It's really unrelated. We're actually going to be covering that in addition to a Crosstime Caper fill-in issue and an Asgardian Adventure fill-in issue in a future episode. Oh, is that the one where basically Archangel has an issue-long flashback about his feelings? Um, pretty much, yeah. So, all of that background laid out in quick succession, let's talk about X-Factor number 48 through 50. We begin with the prisoner exchange at Common Ground. And I love the narration here. Witness a world at war. That's pleasantly alliterative. It is. It's also a cool way to open the second half of the story that we're in now because the first, well, four issues technically are all set up. They're all world building. They're all learning about the different factions and how they interact and different aspects and customs within the culture. And now everything's finally coming to a head. And sure enough, this is war. Well, this is a break in the fighting. This is the factions coming together to exchange prisoners. The rejects have brought Jean, who again, they're presuming to be one of the chosen. She is currently mind-bound, effectively unconscious. Right. And so the chosen representatives, the chief geneticist and the aforementioned High Lord Rask, they're like, hey, we don't know if that lady is awesome or not. How about you unbind her so we can see? And the rejects are like, dude, you totally don't want that. And he's like, dude, I totally do. I'm a chosen. Look at my beard. You got to listen to me. So they do, in fact, unmind lock Jean, at which point she wakes up. Well, she doesn't exactly wake up because remember that part where Jean has multiple personalities within her mind? And one of them is a massive cosmic force. Yeah, so she just unleashes telekinetic hell on the geneticist and Rask. And this is our title page. We get our title and our opening credits and... The way Paul Smith draws all of this is so freaking amazing. Like, this big telekinetic sphere is pulling back from Jean, and her own telekinesis is just blasting through the hole as soon as it opens. Like, 
a single panel with that kind of action and dynamism and pace is hard to do. But if you're Paul Smith, you totally can. Speaking of things Paul Smith is doing terrifically well, one of my favorite things about this scene and this issue is the way he handles Gene's personality transitions. We mentioned this before, I think, when we first started covering this arc. But you can usually tell which personality is dominant in Jean by her body language and the way her hair is lying. It's true, yeah. Although for me, I have a little trouble distinguishing the Phoenix and normal Jean. Like with Madeline, you can see she has very different hair. It's much straighter and flatter. But the Phoenix and Jean, the only way I can really tell them apart is that the Phoenix has Phoenixy looking speech bubbles. Phoenix has slightly wilder hair and a very slight aura. Yeah, it is cool, though. And the characters do comment on it. That's not just there for the benefit of the uh, reader. It's also there for the benefit of, you know, the people on the page. Another point of Madeline disambiguation is that she refers to the baby as Nathan, not Christopher, which is what everyone else has been calling him. And that comes up very quickly because after the Chosen resubdue her, they take her to the crash, where coincidentally, the baby that was just found, Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, also is. And she just runs forward and says, oh, my baby, and then immediately turns into Madeline, calls him Nathan, and gets super menacing. Luckily for Nathan Christopher, he is a budding telekinetic, so he is able to repel her with a force bubble. And he also just, like, knocks her the fuck out. Like, he just telekinetically zaps her. Dang, kid. Right. And, okay, so, for one thing, that's our cable. But this actually highlights something I really enjoy about cable sometimes. That he's a baby? Uh, no. I mean, that's that's fine. I guess I'm kind of neutral on that. But... Nathan Christopher Charles Dayspring Ascani Summers is an incredibly powerful psychic, both in terms of telepathy and telekinesis. Like, presumably he got that from the person his mother was cloned from. But regardless, like, he's Omega level. He's really up there. And it's only because he later gets infected with a techno-organic virus that those powers are constantly, you know, being used up and he can't really access them. Like, his telekinesis and telepathy are trying so hard to keep the virus in check and not kill him that really he's just a dude with a gun. And so when he finally does get over the virus, when he finally can, like, kind of unleash his psychic destiny and become this messianic figure, for me, that's when Cable starts to get really interesting. Like, I never really liked him much as a mercenary. I mean, he's fun sometimes that way, like in, say, Dennis Hopeless's Cable on X-Force run or Cy Spurrier's own X-Force run. But normally, eh, you know, robot-armed dudes are a dime a dozen. What I love about Cable, one of the things I love about him, is that he is a great case for the narrative value of retcons because he's a fascinating character who's complexity has been built largely through retroactive continuity. Absolutely true, yeah. But anyway, Gene, like we said, is captured once again. There's not quite as much capturing in this arc as there was in the Asgardian adventure, but there's still a fair bit. Gene in particular kind of should have a handle. Yeah, and another person who's captured is the most perfect Sira. Now, we mentioned she'd been taking care of the baby until she was caught. Right now, she's high status enough that she hasn't been, you know, punished or executed, but she is still imprisoned by High Lord Rask, who is gradually gaining more and more power within Chosen Culture. And she's being guarded, somewhat tragically, by her former only friend, the robot who raised her, who has since been mind-wiped. Yeah, that's ZZ-105, not a radio station, but in fact, a robot, and it's Maybe always- also a radio station. More Chosen propaganda today on ZZ105 after these top 10 easy listening hits. (laughs) The Chosen totally would listen to easy listening, wouldn't they? ZZ105 is brought to you by The Scientists. So my mother used to listen to like soft jazz in the mornings. And when I was really tired, it was the most nerve wracking thing I could possibly imagine. Not just the music itself, but specifically that kind of announcer voice you were just doing. Like it just set my nerves on edge every morning. Perhaps you need repairs. 
ZZ105 is brought to you by The Scientists for all your repair needs. Oh man, I gotta listen to some Dragon Force to just counteract that. Dragon Force is reject music. We don't listen to Dragon Force on ZZ105. But anyway, Sira does run away, and she decides not to kill ZZ-105, because even if it has been reprogrammed and will probably sound the alarm, ZZ-105's her bud. Can't stop the signal with another 12 hours of classic soft jazz. (laughs) She does uh, manage to break into the chamber where Archangel, the, you know, X-Factor member that she first met and kind of has a thing for, is being held and being drugged and occasionally tortured. And she starts to free him along with Agram, the reject warrior who was also in the arena. I am no longer one of the most perfect. I forfeited that honor when I nurtured the baby from the stars and my life when I refused to sell myself into an alliance with Rask. But since I owe that life to you who saved it in battle, it seems right to free you before it is entirely lost. Okay, this is a trope I really, really enjoy. I'm not a fan of, you know, royalty as a concept in real life. But the whole, like, a uh, fallen noble who suddenly discovers the value of actual honor instead of just, you know, status and wealth, it kind of works for me, like, really well. Well, there's a lot of, I think, cultural power to the privilege claimed and repurposed narrative. There is, and it's not the first time we've seen it in X-Men, either. I'm thinking uh, specifically of Philip Moreau, the gene engineer's son from Genosha, who has a similar revelation of his culture being super screwed up and tries to fix it. Now, as she frees Archangel, she explains to him that he's supposed to fight not just any random person in the arena next time, but Iceman. And at this point, she's put two and two together. She knows that Iceman is one of Archangel's friends, that he's one of the people that Archangel came to this world with, and that since he's lost his memories, Iceman himself probably will try to kill Warren. This is the point in the story, I think, where Sira, who has been kind of resisting outright revolution, outright rebellion, really sort of claims agency and decides that she is going to act. And she's kind of the main character of the story. We mentioned that last episode, or the last Judgment War episode anyway, and this is where we start to really see that. And I like this a lot because, I don't know, I was thinking of uh, Avatar, like Dances with Smurfs, not, you know, The Last Airbender. And my biggest objection to that movie is that our main character basically jumps into a culture not his own and is this sort of awesome savior that none of them could be and fixes everything. I think you totally could have fixed that if you had instead had him basically empower the existing leader of the people, the female lead. Yeah, if Zoe Saldana had been the one to ride the big fancy dragon at the end and it had been otherwise kept the same, I think that would have fixed the biggest problem with it. Right. And so here we have X-Factor coming to this world and certainly inspiring the existing faction, certainly helping them to see that, you know, their way of life is not the only one. But when it comes down to it, it's characters like Sira and Lev and Ryast who really guide the positive change that occurs in this arc. Now, they're still falling under the great man fallacy, so there's only so far it pushes the envelope, but still good and still making progress. Now, we've talked about how the Chosen live in relative isolation, and one of the things they're apparently isolated from are Metal Gear Solid games, because Sira doesn't know that when you knock out a bunch of guards, you gotta hide them in lockers. Yeah, because at this point, Rask shows up, you know, her jailer, the High Lord climbing Chosen Society, having followed said trail of bodies, and manages to take out everybody there. He manages to blast down Archangel and Sira and is about to kill Sira when he is stopped by the most perfect Palak. As opposed to the less perfect Palaks, as we established. Maybe they're less green or their heads are less big. She is one of the most perfect, Rask. She is above the law. To punish her would set a most unsettling precedent. So Rask decides instead that he's going to tie her fate to Archangels in the arena. If Archangel beats Iceman, kills Iceman, Sira survives. If he doesn't, she dies. 
Palak agrees to it and then quickly realizes, wait a minute, this is just Rask trying to gain more and more power. I need to scheme some more. I need to fix this. Let's see what we can do. This, meanwhile, puts Angel into a really difficult position. Either he fights, you know, he's really good, one of his oldest friends, to the death, or this woman for whom he's also functionally responsible for dies. Yeah, it sucks to be Warren Worthington yet again. Who it also sucks to be right now is the Bouncing Blue Beast. He has been imprisoned by the rejects once they realized that he was lying about his origins and was, in fact, friends with who they see as a chosen. And he's just sort of waiting. He's waiting for something to happen. Can't blame her for tossing me in here. The rejects are kindly but stubborn and narrow-minded. And they wear their misfortune as if it were a crown. But not all of them are so depressed because some of the rejects are celebrating right now. Agram has been, in fact, purchased at the common ground. He's been exchanged for other prisoners, uh, Jean, actually. And so one of the reveling guards stops by Hank's cell saying, Hey, uh, I know you're imprisoned, but I thought you were kind of a good guy. Have a drink. At which point he shoves his arm and a drink through the cell door. Beast manages to knock out the guard and get the keys and starts to escape. He runs into Agram, the exchanged prisoner. but. Here's the thing. Agram's been imprisoned with Archangel, and he's heard Archangel talk about his buddies, and he recognizes Beast from the description. Angel tells me all about you. Agram is pleased to meet you. Sarka, why have you put in prison this feisty little fellow from the stars? Feisty little fellow from the stars. The Hank McCoy story. Seriously, I love that phrase so much. Right? And so Beast realizes, all right, this has gone poorly so far. I'm just going to come clean. And he tells Zarka and Agram and the rest of the rejects everything. And they're like, cool, bro. Basically, yeah. Now, as this is going on, there is one character we haven't seen very much of, and that is, in fact, Ship. Ship, last we saw, was caught by a Celestial. The Celestial asks Ship, so what's your deal? And Ship says, well, I was created by Apocalypse. I was freed by X-Factor. I'm friends with him now. And the Celestial's like, really? Are you really sure that's actually your origin story? And Ship realizes the truth. In fact, Ship was created by the Celestials themselves as a sort of data recording device and put on Earth. Apocalypse then co-opted it, gave it false memories, and rode around in it for a while. And Ship's purpose was to gather data for the Celestials, but specifically so that the Celestials could use that data to judge Earth's worthiness to continue to exist and humanities to be allowed to continue to evolve. That is what they do. The Celestials are really judgmental. And they basically judge the shit out of planets and then maybe sometimes explode them. Yeah, they just say, well, bless their heart, and then, like, detonate the planet core. So, basically, what you're saying is that they're Southerners. You know, genteel Southern ladies, who are also Kirby robots. Oh my god, that would be so awesome. I would watch slash read the hell out of that. You know, you could just watch Designing Women and pretend. <laughs> we could just rotoscope the whole thing and just put, like, Jack Kirby Celestial skins over them. Look, one of the characters is nicknamed the Terminator. Well, there we go. It's perfect. But anyway, the Celestials are in fact doing exactly that to this unnamed planet as the Beginnigans have predicted. Designing it? No, they're about to judge it. They're gathering in greater and greater numbers around the Chosen City, flying in just hordes of dozens and dozens of them. Ship, for its part, manages to pull away and immediately goes off in search of X-Factor. Yeah, it takes a second to think about it because it realizes, okay, I'm sentient. As a data recording device, I wasn't supposed to be. My life is rare and precious. But what's the point of living if you're not loyal to your friends? So let's go kick some ass and save some X-Factor. Man, ship is so good. Now, the Celestials, only five of them are on the planet so far. They're sort of standing motionless around the Chosen City. And there's this beautiful, beautiful panel that just shows the scale and the majesty of them. We see the city itself, but it looks almost like a sandcastle in terms of scale. Like, 
Even the tallest buildings only come up to the knees of the Celestials. This issue, we should also note, is the last one drawn by Paul Smith, unfortunately. It's kind of weird. Like, Paul Smith leaves uh, one issue away from the climax of the Judgment War, just like Brett Blevins left New Mutants two issues before the end of the Asgardian adventure. So, what's he drawing while he's still around? Well, aside from drawing Space God standing around, he's drawing the bustling interior of the Chosen City. We see Lev, the aforementioned dueler who has been hanging out with Iceman, taking wagers and bets from the commoners, and just shrugging off the insults from all the uh, non-dueler chosen around her. Like, you get the impression, again, this story has so much show-don't-tell, you get the impression that, you know, the duelers are just used to being treated like garbage. It doesn't even really affect their self-esteem because that's just the way things are and the way things have always been. Now, Lev is encouraging Bobby to kill Archangel. If the duelers have learned a lesson from Rask other than that he's a raging asshole, it's that wealth can purchase status and power regardless where one starts. Again, Rask is imperfect. Rask has a birthmark and a, like, funky beard. I think he's also, like, taller than he's supposed to be. That's not a good thing in chosen society. I guess. Iceman doesn't like this idea. I mean, he doesn't want to kill anybody. And this is interesting because his mind, his memories have been completely wiped. So that basically shows this, not pacifism exactly, but at least compassion, mercy as a fundamental trait. No, no, the things that are left when you wipe away Iceman's memories, as this story demonstrates, are compassion, a sense of humor, and compulsive, overcompensatory heterosexuality. Pretty much, yeah. Like, he's so ladies-mannish toward Lev here. But in a really performed way. I mean, that's, I honestly, that's always been part of the case for Iceman coming out. Like, for as long as there have been conversations about it, is that it is so performative. Yeah, and I don't know if that was intended by Louis Simonson at this point, but at least retroactively, you can very easily read it that way. He's like the dude who ends every third sentence with, ladies. Basically, ladies. And in fact, he just embraces Lev and kisses her very surprised face right before heading off to the arena. This is sudden, but it's implied that it's also shocking for another reason. Sex and sexuality aren't part of the chosen and by extension aren't part of the dueler's culture. Right. You know, they don't reproduce sexually. And in fact, they're not even encouraged to touch each other at all. That's considered sort of a, a faux pas, if not a sin. But you know who does have sex? The rejects. But not right now, because they are busy sneaking through the sewers into the Chosen City alongside Beast. Yes, having heard Beast's story, they're like, oh, well, since you're not actually a jerk or a spy, then yes, we will happily take down Chosen Society and save your friends with you. Let's do this thing. Feisty little man from the stars. I wish I could call myself that. You can. I'm a feisty little man, but I'm not from the stars. I mean, I, I guess mean, I'm near. we're kind of all from the stars. It's sort of like how we're all always in space by virtue of being on a planet which is itself in space. Well, there you go. Perfect. Feisty little man from the stars. The Miles Stokes and Hank McCoy story. You headed this section, Beast and the Rejects in all caps, which really kind of sounds like it should be maybe like a, a gutter core band. I think so, or a sewer core in this case. I gotta say, about this sewer, this is a surprisingly clean and pleasant looking sewer. Or so you think. I mean, you don't know what chosen waste products look like. I mean, I guess not. It just looks like it has like Thousand Flushes style blue water in it. Maybe, maybe that's what they pee. Looks like it smells floral. Shh, smell that? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they're heading into the city and very quickly, they're surprised because Wilge, who's one of the rejects with them, can see through walls, and she sees a group of Chosen just sort of hanging out at the outskirts of town. That's weird because there's the big arena fight between Iceman and Archangel about to start. As it turns out, these are not Chosen at all. They are Cyclops and the Beginning Ends, and I want to take a minute to talk about the outfits that they are wearing. Oh, it is amazing. I mean, they were wearing some pretty sweet tunics and stuff before this, but now they're disguised as Chosen, and, well... They've gone full this island Earth. 
Yeah, they have these hoods that make it look like they have giant bubble heads, kind of like what most perfect Palak is wearing. Or, you know, the Impossible Man. Or the Impossible Man. And it looks pretty awesome and pretty weird with Cyclops' Ruby Quartz visor. No, they're just goofy as hell in general, and they're amazing, and they make me so happy. Then Beast and Cyclops are overjoyed to see each other because each of them has heard nothing of the other. They've got bits of leads on some of the other X-Men, but as far as each of them knew, the other one was dead. And so they hug and high-five and stuff and talk about where to go from here. So the plan, as it turns out, is that Beast, Agrom, and the beginning-again Daikon are going to go stop Iceman from killing Archangel. They know at this point that his memories are gone and that this could get real ugly. While that's going on, Cyclops and everybody else are going to go save Jean and Nathan Christopher and also turn off the power to the arena so that the reject army can get in and start a ruckus. And presumably at some point during this, the begin-agains will take over the loudspeaker and talk everyone else into peaceful resistance. The arena fight, though, is about to start, and we don't know what's going to happen because, you know, Iceman and Archangel are both kind of badass. Only one of them was a horseman of death, but the other one has had his compassion mind-blasted out. Excuse me, we do know what's going to happen. We have read ahead. Well, okay, we know what's going to happen, but most people wouldn't. And even for folks who are just reading along as it comes out, the fight is being thrown. Because Palak, the most perfect guy, the leader of the Chosen, has called for Archangel to be brought to him. He talks about how he himself doesn't really care who wins philosophically, but if Archangel wins, that means Rask is going to gain even more power, continue climbing the ranks, and basically upend all of Chosen society. So Palak does what any sensible leader would do, which is blind Archangel with a power blast to the eyes. And I kind of like this. Like, he's—well, I mean, I don't like that Archangel's blinded, but I do like that Palak is just utterly without any emotional investment in this situation. He knows that the social order benefits him, so he wants to maintain it, so he does whatever he can to make that happen. The Iceman must defeat you. You must die. A pity, but this is the way it must be. Rask will lose his fortune, and with it, the collusion of the scientists. An autopsy will confirm that you have been blinded. The duelers will be blamed. They have, after all, the most to gain from Iceman's victory. They will fall, lower than they were before, and the perfect will continue to rule, as they've always ruled. Now, unfortunately for Palak, there is a third person in the room. There is a size-changing dueler who has secreted themselves away in Archangel's wings and immediately scurries off to let Lev know what has happened. Unfortunately, by the time she finds out that the match is rigged and that the duelers are going to be screwed no matter what happens, Iceman has already gone off to, unbeknownst to him, kill his buddy. Whoops. The battle itself is really, really, really well staged. These are interesting dudes, and one of the more interesting aspects of it is watching how Iceman is handled in this. Now, we talked about, you know, the parts of Iceman's personality that stick around when his mind's been wiped. But the question of how his powers work when he's not limited by his prior training, aside from, you know, what he's got instinctually, is an entirely different one and one we've seen very little of. And when we see Iceman in fights as a member of X-Factor, we see him primarily using his powers defensively. He makes walls, he freezes people in place, and so forth. Here, not so much. Yeah, seeing him just be fully aggressive, seeing him not afraid to kill the person he's fighting, like, you start to remember that, wait a minute, maybe a watermelon-sized chunk of ice chucked at your head at really high velocity would actually, you know, kill you. Not if you've got a PhD in dodging thrown objects. No wonder Professor Xavier set him up to do all that shit in the danger room. (laughs) Right. So Archangel is put in the peculiar position, in fact, in the very direct reversal of his last conflict with Iceman when he was still death of now trying to talk Iceman down and convince him to recognize Archangel and to remember their friendship, unfortunately to no effect. And also unfortunately, Archangel's wings don't like this plan. As the caption tells us, 
He can make the Iceman remember, or die himself. Or the wings throb, echoing the frenzy of the crowd. Or you can stop the fight, end it now in a spurt of ice and blood, end it the only way you can. But before Archangel can go full horseman of apocalypse, the ground bursts open, thanks to our earthquake-controlling begin-again friend Daikon. See, it totally fits the radish thing kind of a little bit. Do radishes burst through arena floors and then let a dude do a fastball special with another dude? I mean, if they're really big radishes and you plant them and water them, maybe? The, the up-through-the-ground thing. We gotta start gardening, apparently. But yes, that's what happens, because through this new hole in the ground, the reject agram fastball specials beast directly at Iceman to break up the fight. Aw, hell yeah. And this is kind of a big deal, because this is the first time any Begin Again has taken a role in the reject chosen conflict. They've been, you know, sworn themselves to pacifism. They've sworn themselves to not making things worse for the impending judgment of the space gods, the Celestials, and Daikon's going against that. Speaking of changing sides and unlikely team-ups, Lev sees perfect Sira chained up. Now, Lev hates Sira, but she starts to reconsider in light of the current circumstances. She hasn't got much brains. <laughs> Look where it got her. But she has more courage in her little finger than all the others. And if she can move openly against them, can I do less? Fuck yeah, heroes, team-ups. I actually really enjoy this here, this whole, like, contagious heroism principle. This is something we see a lot of in this story arc, and it also is something that feels very X-Men to me in general. The whole, like, you know, finding empathy with people in a different social category, with people you're not supposed to get along with or respect, becoming a better person due to people who you would have considered a worse person being heroic. Well, in the case of mutants in general, encouraging people to see their differences as tools rather than as weaknesses. Exactly. And so Lev does manage, after knocking uh, Rask into the pit below, Hell yeah. to free Sira, saying, okay, here's the deal, we basically need to fix Iceman's mental conditioning or else this is going to all go to hell. You're a telepath, I know you can't really control your powers very well, but you have to. Do it, I believe in you. And Sira does. Sira manages to snap Iceman out. And he comes to himself utterly baffled. Hank, what's going on? I, I thought I was... On a war-torn world with giant judges, I was fighting Warren, trying to kill him. Now, wasn't that the craziest? And then he looks up and realizes that, in fact, that is precisely what's going on. Dream? And it really does get across just the, oh, right, we are in space with a bunch of really bizarre different factions in a culture that we don't know anything about. We don't know how we're going to get home. I can just imagine waking up in that. Like, it'd be a little confusing. And the space gods were you, and the ship was you, and the baby was you, and so on and so forth. And that takes us to the climax of the Judgment War, which, as one might expect, is titled Judgment Day. And as with the Asgardian adventure, the final issue of Judgment War starts with a big ol' fight. Yes, indeed. Pretty much everybody's in the arena at this point, except for Palak, who's just sort of grinning all evil-like, kind of like when the Shadow King took that guy over in that issue of X-Men we just talked about. Yeah, he's just up top out of it. So Rask, even though he's been pushed down into the arena, he's a pretty tough dude. That beard is full of a lot of power, presumably the birthmark is as well. He manages to take down Lev, Sira, and Archangel and climb back up to the nobles area, and he starts to realize that, wait a minute, all of this, everything going on, is just a plot by the most perfect Palak to preserve the status quo, the status quo that says that Rask himself is imperfect. Rask himself cannot have power. Iceman attacks Rask from below as Palak orders the duelers to quell the riot, but the duelers decide that they have had enough of this shit, and Lev steps up to challenge Palak. His loyalty is to the near-perfect chosen. If we would not be slaves, he would destroy us. Sira, most perfect next to Palak himself, has learned this truth and fights against the chosen, her own people. 
as the Iceman fights down below. Can we duelers do less? Iceman, for his part, is still trying to get his bearings. What's going on, Hank? A revolution, Bobby, my boy. And you're its hero. At this point, Lev swoops down and kisses Bobby in a wonderful parallel panel to where he kissed her. This time, he's the one with his eyes open, looking confused and panicked. And they all go to war. At this point, Cyclops and his troops are blasting through walls. This is, in fact, an X-Factor book. You can't just take out floors. And headed towards Jean in their silly hats. They find a science robot, which is running the hell away from him, and when they catch it, it explains that a nearby broken robot, which one of the rejects has sensed has a soul, okay, is really ZZ-105. It went mad, you see? It tried to steal a baby. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! I forgot to say that the last X-Factor episode, so I have to say it a lot this time. So the captive Cybot plays back the defunct ZZ-105's mind tapes. 22 hours straight of soft jazz and rebellious folklore today on ZZ-105. <laughs> Which kind of shows them what all happened. They start to get a bigger picture of where Gene and Nathan Christopher are, where the power grid is. Today's smooth jazz hits are brought to you by Perfect Sierra and an extensive plan to undermine the existing social power structure through use of complex metaphor. So they head in to free Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani Day Spring Summers and Gene Gray, who unfortunately is currently cycling rapidly between the various different redheads that are in that body. She's cycling between selves, but she manages, once Scott is talking to her, the gene persona manages to sort of claw its way up to the top and at least regain control for the time being. That doesn't stop her from being really worried that the other personalities are going to take over again, that the power within her might hurt Cyclops or even worse, hurt Nathan Christopher. First, though, there's a battle to finish. There's time to worry about that stuff later. So she is able to hold it together, at least for long enough to destroy the power core. In the arena, the power grid, the big sort of metal electric zappy net that covers the whole thing and keeps all the people in the arena and away from the audience, sputters and dies, at which point, as planned, Zarka and the Rejects... God, now I just keep thinking of all of these as bands, like Zarka's the front woman and the Rejects are her band. They bust in, and it is a grand freaking melee. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of warriors of various factions all kicking each other's ass in the bloody sand. As Daikon confronts Palak... And Palak does the same thing to Daikon that he did to Archangel. He blinds him. And Daikon is about to strangle Palak. Daikon apparently can keep fighting just fine without being able to see. But Sierra stops him and explains that no, no, he can't kill Palak yet because Palak can actually cure what he started. He can restore Daikon and also Archangel's vision. So they got to keep him alive for now. And so to save his own life, Palak does exactly that. Which means in the current duel between Archangel and Rask, which Archangel is greatly losing, suddenly advantage Warren Worthington III. And suddenly advantage death, because the first thing he does on getting his sight back is just impale Rask with blades from his wings. And, you know, on the one hand, this is sad. Like, we don't like seeing our heroes kill people, at least not X-Factor. That's not a thing that they do. They're no, you know, X-Men of this era. At the same time, though, Rask has been such an unapologetic, violent, selfish, cruel, sadistic villain. I don't really feel too bad for him at this point. Yeah, odds seem reasonably good that he would have ended up executed by military tribunal anyway. So as this big melee is going on, as people are dying left and right, the begin-agains, the ones that didn't come with Cyclops, who decided to stay neutral and pacifistic, fly toward the arena and are shot down just in time to be caught telekinetically by Jean Grey. And they recognize that there's something going on with her, uh, says Ryast. There is something in you. A soul of fire and pain that cries out to the infinite. Unless we stop the space gods, we'll all be particles of the infinite. And Ryast smiles. Then we must not let that happen. 
And just as they start to come up with the plan, well, we get some super dramatic narration. Chosen and rejects in deadly combat turn their eyes to heaven and grow still as the final celestial lands at the edge of the city. The fear becomes a palpable thing, for on his thumb is the formula of destruction, and even the other space gods fall back, for this is Arashem. And we have now officially reached peak Jack Kirby. Now, Arashem, along with the Celestials themselves, is an existing creation. Jack Kirby created him in 1976, and the deal with him is, yes, he has the formula of destruction on his thumb. And this sounds silly, and okay, it is silly, but basically what it means is when he does the whole, like, you know, judgment from the arena, thumbs up, thumbs down thing, that's what determines the fate of a planet. But yeah, we also have seen this guy more recently, earlier this year, in fact, earlier in 1989, as part of the fourth host, as opposed to the fifth host on this planet, he was in an issue of Thor on the planet Pangoria, which did get judged and found wanting and was basically rewritten, remade. Now, let's take a look at scale quick, because we've talked about how big the Celestials are, but you actually looked up specific stats on them, right? Yes, according to the Marvel database, Arashem himself is exactly 2,000 feet tall and 22 million pounds. Now, I ran the math on it. That means his body mass index is 26.9. So Arashem is technically overweight, but I think it's really important to talk about health at any size here because, you know, different people have different dimensions, different body types that can work really well for them. And look at this guy. He's lived for thousands, if not millions of years, so clearly he's fine. So let's not body shame him for a silly thing like BMI that has a lot of scientific flaws. You covered the point I was going to, which is that BMI is kind of a spurious metric anyway. Even for space gods. And that, ultimately, is the moral of Judgment War. Yes, nothing else. No, it's not. Well. No, it's not at all. At this point, because apparently all of the things have to happen at once, which I gotta say, in a big climactic scene like this, yes, all of the things should happen at once— Ship descends. Ship has finally gotten here to extract its friends, X-Factor, and get them the hell out of this planet that's about to be judged and probably destroyed. But X-Factor won't go. Gene says, Have you ever heard a people die, Ship? I have. The Phoenix, who had stolen my body and a part of my soul, once destroyed a world, and that memory is a torment to me. Now I can help save this planet, and in a way make amends for what she did. And this is how you use continuity in a way that works. This is where you say, hey, here's a memory that this character has. Here's a reason she would be motivated to do this extreme act. It doesn't take away from the Dark Phoenix saga and what the Phoenix did, but it does really provide a little bit of extra context here and add a little bit of extra poignancy. In the words of Lisa Simpson, apt. It's apt. Yes. And so very quickly, they all come up with the plan because that giant formula of destruction thumb is about to do its formula of destruction thing. And their plan is so amazing. I cannot even. So first of all, the rejects, the beginning ends, the duelers are inspired by X-Factor. They go, okay, look at these guys. They're all friends. They're all different. You know, if they can make this work, we can make this work. Riest of the beginning ends. You you mentioned X-Factor and inspiring contagious heroism. And he's got a speech all set and prepared about that. They are different from each other as we are different. We could call them rejects. Duelers, the perfect, even a giant robot ship. A brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. But they call themselves friends. They call each other brother. Can we do less than follow their lead and unite against this great enemy who would destroy us before we destroy each other? Or perhaps, tragically, just as we are allowed to see how we can live together. What right have the space gods to decide our fate? I say to you, unite! Drive the space gods from our planet! Never to return again. So the Chosen and the Rejects 
basically decide this is a solid plan and they are proud to be part of it. And they ask Jean to use the Phoenix. Jean is worried about losing control, but Scott talks her into it. Man, what they actually do, how does this work? Okay, so what's going on is that the most powerful of the rejects and the chosen and the begin agains are all telekinetically levitated by Jean and psychically linked together by the Phoenix Force. At that point, she channels their sheer humanity and willpower and psychic might through herself, but not just through herself because she's worried about being taken over. So through herself to Cyclops, he absorbs that energy, which I guess he can sort of do. And outputs an optic blast made of the goddamn Phoenix Raptor and blows Arishem's entire hand off. Now, we know from the Archon annual that Cyclops can actually metabolize and produce different types of energy. He he did that with Storm's Lightning. What I'm getting from this is that he can metabolize and weaponize the power of love. Don't need no credit card to ride that train. Yes, he can. And I have nothing bad to say about this. Like, sometimes a plot point will not really make sense and not really be logical, But it's cool enough that that's totally fine. And that is exactly what we are seeing here because he just shot a flaming bird made out of love out of his eyeballs at a giant space robot's thumb. It's not just made out of love. It's also made out of the memory of his dead wife. That's right. Because as Jean says, as this happens, Madeline Pryor and the Phoenix are gone. She still remembers what they could remember, but their personalities as independent entities (laughs) are purged from her. She literally shot them at a celestial... I gotta say, if you're going to defeat a psychic force, that is exactly the way to do it. That's like taking clubbing someone with a severed arm to a whole new level. It's clubbing someone with a severed psyche. That's what I love about the Judgment War, is it's not afraid to just not only go to 11, but then just keep going from there. This is space opera in its purest form. Like, we have a lot of social allegory and commentary, sure, but what we really have is this amazingly complex alien culture and a bunch of events happening that just seem like they're too much, but they totally fit. And that's the power of love. That is is the power of love. The Celestials rise up into space. They leave. That includes Arishem with his smoking stump where his thumbed hand used to be. But they leave something behind. A big metal rectangle that looks very familiar falls to the planet. Is it the monolith? It is not the monolith, but it is a data recording device because they left another ship here. They're going to monitor the planet this way going forward, presumably. Oh, it's a little baby ship. It kind of is, yeah. And in fact, ship does explain later on that it's downloaded its information into ship and uh, maybe this ship will become sentient as well. And then maybe it can become friends with ZZ-105 and enjoy 10 straight hours of classic soft jazz. And in fact, ZZ-105 is repaired by ship as well with its original personality. Yay, I was really sad when ZZ-105 got reprogrammed and blown up. In that case, let me revise soft jazz and subversion. (laughs) I'm not sure if I like ZZ-105 anymore. (laughs) Soft jazz, subversion, and classic hits of Megadeth. There we go. So they, of course, have a big Ewok-style victory feast because they just, you know, saved the entire planet. And by they, I mean everybody. The rejects, the begin-agains, the chosen, the duelers. Everybody's kind of hanging out and celebrating their planet's new lease on life. And then Gene and Scott discover that they were actually siblings, and it's super awkward. (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, okay, not that. But it's really nice because we have representatives from each of the various factions, you know, Ryas, Zarka, Lev, and Daikon, talking, almost finishing each other's sentences and trying to parse exactly what happened. And what they come up with was, you know, the Celestials showed us their big thumb of destruction to basically give us a target to focus our energy on that wasn't just one another. And I like that. I like that the Celestials, they're not so much there to judge as they are to kind of shepherd various planets to what they need to become. By being a common enemy? 
I mean, in this case, kind of, yes. So not so much the power of love as, like, the power of antagonism. No, it was love for their planet and antagonism toward the people who would destroy their planet. It totally works. It's heartwarming. Just go with it. They make plans for the future of their planet and X-Factor, seeing that they're pretty much going to either sink or swim on their own steam, decide that it's time to head home in the newly independent ship. So they all have tearful farewells because it's only been seven issues, but we have gotten to know these characters in this world so well. It's just such a dense story. So it's a little bittersweet. And seeing those goodbyes is nice. We see Sira saying farewell to Archangel, but saying that she'll miss even more the baby who kind of turned her life around, Nathan Christopher. And Beast is like, you know, you can make those. Like, that's not just a lab thing. And she realizes, oh, right, you know, there are ways to reproduce other than through scientists. You know. I mean, you can reproduce that way through scientists, too. Like, scientists can also reproduce that way. Well, you know that Daikon guy, that lion-faced begin-again, he's not so bad. Hey, gonna bang a lion, dude. That makes me so happy for some reason. I don't know why. And so, yeah, X-Factor takes their leave, ship flies off from this planet, and we are never going to see this planet again in continuity. Stories have never returned here, as far as I know. Maybe they're hanging out with the clone X-Men. Oh, the clone X-Men that were made by the Brood from that one issue of New Mutants that was the weird flashback? Yeah, the ones who've never been revisited. I feel like we've brought those up so many times. I'm sort of hoping someone's going to pick up on that and like have them cameo somewhere, but they haven't yet. That would be amazing. Someday. I want to write a series that they're in. I have ideas for them. Now, as X-Factor is flying back, they pass by another spaceship, unbeknownst to them, that being the Starjammer, where Professor X is, and he gets a psychic flash that his students have just flown by. And he's like, huh, okay. Well, he's portrayed as being very sick here, because as we know, in Uncanny X-Men number 200, Xavier went off into space to be healed by Shi'ar technology. But even so, it seems kind of weird that he's not more surprised that, you know, Jean Grey, his student, who died on the moon, as far as he knows, that she's back. Well, first of all... While he was taken away to be healed by sheer technology, we've seen him up and running perfectly fine since then in New Mutants. And in X-Men itself. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm assuming he just got a space cold or something. It's probably just a space cold from some space bacteria. Yeah, but I also think it's fair to assume, given his own personal history, that Professor X just always assumes that everyone who dies is faking their own death. That's true. That is kind of his baseline. And so, yes, after that brief aside, X-Factor finishes their flight back to Earth with sort of a renewed sense of camaraderie and purpose and embracing their destiny and optimism that people who are different can work together. And they're feeling pretty good. And for a story like this, an unabashed happy ending is completely appropriate. And I love it. So I've mentioned and I keep on bringing up that this is maybe the Star Trekiest X-Factor story ever. Mm -hmm. And it really, really is. And the thing is, it's like it's that way on multiple levels, because not only does it feel like a Star Trek episode in the this planet is an allegory for Earth things, but this planet feels like an allegory for things that mutants are dealing with in the X books, which are themselves an allegory for actual Earth things. So it's kind of a meta metaphor. I would agree. And I think that's one of the reasons this story does work as an X Factor story. As weird as it initially seemed for X-Factor to go off into space and leave Earth behind when their whole purpose was to be the public mutant team, almost the public relations mutant team, what we have is Xavier's dream essentially working. You know, the whole peaceful coexistence between mutants and humans that he wants. We're seeing that inspired by the example of X-Factor on this planet between the Chosen and the Rejects and everybody else. And for me, that is what really drives this home as a story that is fitting to end the first 50 issues of X-Factor on, that is fitting to spend seven issues plus a fill-in covering. Now, you might have thought that by fucking off to space, X-Factor could also conveniently dodge crossover tie-ins. Not so. We've got a teeny tiny subplot that attaches to, you guessed it, Acts of Vengeance. Right. We see everybody's favorite blue-faced fish-lipped dude, Apocalypse, 
pondering the Acts of Vengeance event that he's heard so much about as he looks at the faces of various villains on his uh, group of monitors in his current base. I don't know. It's okay, but I think I preferred Secret Wars. I can't do the apocalypse voice. Sorry. What he notices, being a smart dude, is that there's this mysterious guy in a suit in the background of all of these Acts of Vengeance-related things he's been watching, and sure enough, the guy just straight up steps out of the screen into Apocalypse's base and introduces himself, quickly revealing himself as everybody's favorite trickster god, Loki. Loki's not my favorite trickster god. Most people's favorite trickster god, Loki. I mean, he's pretty good, but I'm just saying, like, he's not the best. I kind of like Anansi or maybe Coyote. Coyote, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about Coyote. But quickly, they fight because while Loki wants to recruit Apocalypse, Apocalypse doesn't cotton to his disdain for humanity. And I think maybe you better do the quote this time. Okay. No wonder the humans have ceased to worship you, Loki. How little you understand the human heart. Humans are not immortal and have little enough time to accomplish their own goals. Humans are not the weaklings you take them for. Each be he hero or villain is dying from the day he is born. Each breath, each effort is an act of courage against inevitable doom. Such courage we immortals only dream of. I mean, it's a very pro-humanity speech for a guy who seems very intent on wiping most of them out. No, 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 it's a tough love kind of thing. He loves humanity so much that he wants to call all the weak, leaving only the strong so that humanity can be that much better. But I actually really like this angle on Apocalypse. I like him as not just a total jerk, but as somebody who really genuinely, in his metallic Egyptian heart, has humanity's best interests as he sees them in mind. I believe this is also our first glimpse of the first of Apocalypse's new horsemen. That's right, because during this fight, Loki is attacked by a face we've kind of seen before. And the body attached to it. That of Caliban. Caliban the Morlock, who had been bemoaning his weakness as the mutant massacre occurred years ago and had basically given himself to Apocalypse to gain the power to not be so helpless in the world. And now he's buff as hell. Now he's buff as hell and in a snazzy red suit. And that distraction is enough for Apocalypse to imprison Loki and his machines. Oh man, I really wish that they'd done some kind of ad for at least one of the storylines around him by parodying the old Charles Atlas ads. Oh man, like Caliban gets uh, sand kicked in his face and then he goes and gets souped up by Apocalypse and exactly. then beats up the bully. Yeah. I love this plan. Yeah. And uh, Loki does what any trickster god when imprisoned by a machinery would do and flees back into the television, basically thumbing his nose at Apocalypse and uh, getting the hell out of there. And that's the only Acts of Vengeance crossover we have to deal with in X-Factor. Thank God. Now, that ends our coverage for this episode, but I'm going to segue, actually, because Judgment War is all about engagements. It's all about changing the world. So this is in particular for the listeners in the United States. The rest of you, you can just sort of tune us out for the next moment. Voting day, election day is November 8th. And if you have not voted yet, you might live in a place with early voting. You might live in the magical land of Oregon where we do and have gotten to vote by mail, which is the best thing ever, by the way. But um, if you haven't yet and you're eligible and you can, we would like to encourage all of you to vote. Voting is awesome. Voting is a really important way to engage in civic process, especially, especially, especially at the local level. This is a presidential election year, and obviously that's been where a lot of the media focus has been. But local elections and legislative elections are super important to a huge, huge, huge amount rests on those huge amounts of policy and the stuff that really affects your life directly ends on those. You can still find a lot of voting guides online. But yeah, please, if you haven't vote, voting is awesome. Voting is rad. Voting is really, really important. Yep. We're big fans. Please go out and do it. Finish this episode and then go change democracy. It'll be good stuff. In the meantime, uh, you have questions. 
An anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, Hey, very sorry to ask slash say this, but is there any way you could use a word other than queer when talking about LGBT stuff? I'm gay, and while I know a lot of people have reclaimed the word, for me it is always like a slap in the face. I've had people use it in violent ways. If not, I understand. It's just a very painful word for me to hear. Thank you. Okay, so I wanted to address this on air because it's something that matters a lot to me. Ultimately, the answer to this question is going to be no. And I really want to take a minute to talk about why, because I think this is really, really important. And because I think it's worth addressing. And I, because I think if, if you're answering no to a question where, where it's someone asking for an accommodation because something is causing them distress, it's really worth taking the time to actually talk about that. So first of all, as I've said a lot of times here and elsewhere, I identify as queer. Not gay, not bi, not like queer is the word I use for personal identification. And for me, it's a sexual and a social identity. And it's the one word I found that really encompasses and expresses those aspects of my identity without diminishing or constraining them. When you ask me not to use that word, you're effectively stripping away my ability to express a really significant part of who I am and to locate my perspective in that. By the same token, when I use the term queer to describe fictional characters, subtext, and so forth, I'm using it because it's the most appropriate term that exists that I have access to, because of its status and because of its pedigree as part of the lexicon of critical and social theory, and because it expresses things that other similar words don't. Speaking of that pedigree and of theory, I also want to talk some about cultural context because words exist within that, as, as I, you know, the question establishes firmly as well. And queer is a word that has, through decades of effort and work, been largely and proudly reclaimed by the queer community. Obviously, it is still used as a slur, but it is, you know, queer theory is a formal field of study created and named by and for us. And its history as a slur matters. Yes, absolutely. But by the same token, That other history matters too and is really important. Finally, and I think most important to me, Anonymous, I am truly sorry that it's difficult for you to hear this word and that this is something that causes you pain and that I'm in a position where I can't give you what you're asking for. But here's the thing, and here ultimately is why I feel like I really need to stand my ground on this. When an identity itself is stigmatized and marginalized, Literally any word for that identity will at some point be wielded in violence. I mean, you identify yourself as gay in your question. And that's something that I've been called pejoratively, probably more than any other term. And you're going to find that that's going to be true of any word that means that, because what's being weaponized beyond the language is the identity. If the fact that it's been used to hurt is our only criterion for stripping people of the right to use that word then all we're going to be left with is silence. And that, I think, is the most violent outcome of all. So I'm sorry, Anon, and I really appreciate that you contacted us, but that is something, that is a point that I am not willing to concede. That was really well said. Thank you. On a much lighter note, another or possibly the same anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, over the years, the X-Men has had crossovers with a lot of odd comic book properties such as Star Trek. And I was wondering which comic book property you'd cross them with if you had a chance. And if you were to cross them with a newspaper comic, what would the plot be? So we kind of honed in on the newspaper comic part of this one. And there are so many possible answers, and we're very proud of ourselves for not just talking about Doonesbury all the time like we always do. Well, X-Men has already crossed over with Doonesbury. Well, yes, true, true. And so I think I'm going to go for Zitz. Uh, do you guys remember Zitz, the newspaper comic? It's by Jerry Scott and Jim Borgman. It started in like 1997. I used to read it in high school all the time. So it's about a teenager who's awkwardly going through high school. I think it would be great. You can keep the surrealism of the strip, like, you know, Jeremy's mom having to dig a tunnel through the uh, giant pile of trash in his room. 
You can keep the sort of lanky, awkward character designs that make it work so well and make it feel so teenaged, but have, you know, mutant powers worked in. So it would just be basically one more thing for Jeremy and his family and friends to have to kind of figure out how to come to an understanding about. And you could have funny little three panel gags over and over about just one more thing on top of all the other adolescent stuff. Now, being me, I went straight to the serious ones. So first of all, I think Mark Trail seems like a shoe in for a Wolverine team up. Like, that's really a no brainer. <laughs> also, Mary Worth. First of all, and I've got reasons for this other than finding Mary Worth, like, hilarious and amazing. And I, I love Mary Worth. You don't understand how much I love Mary Worth. But June Brigman is the current artist on Mary Worth. Really? Like, who drew the power pack and drew a bunch of other X stuff? Yes. So, obviously, she is well suited to handle this particular sort of crossover. Oh, man, that's so great. Right. And um, also, I am fairly sure that Mary Worth is basically a dethroned god sent to Earth to learn humility, sort of Thor style, who just hasn't. Do you think she has the formula of destruction written on her thumb and exists to judge the world? I do. Well, there we go. Now we just need to shoot some birds out of our eyes that are full of love and blow her hand off. Well, that went in a slightly uh, unplanned direction. So anyway, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the benefits that comes with supporting us at a certain level is thanks on air in a variety of fictional concepts and voices. So let me turn it over to everyone's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. You thought to come to us as a savior, Travis Lassiak. But will your feeble efforts be enough to withstand the judgment of Nundun? From there, I am handing it off to Apocalypse. You are foolish, Loki. So far removed from humanity that you know not the great power of their otherwise feeble, flickering bravery. Brandon House is but an eyeblink of mortality, yet he commutes 45 minutes to work in heavy traffic each day. Have you an equivalent on Asgard, trickster? GDG has mere decades remaining on this planet but does not send his meal back to the kitchen, even when they forget to remove the onions. Your immortality blinds you to their courage, to the potential that has but to be nurtured by culling the weak to let the strong thrive. Speaking of which, Brandon, GDG, which of you would you say is stronger? Asking for a friend. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be teaming up live with the spectacular Scott Koblish for a very special live episode straight from Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. (laughs) 